0: Baby, it's not cold inside. There's something wrong with the cooler. Welcome to Service Calls, a podcast brought to you by TechTown in partnership with Food Service Equipment Reports. I'm Rob LaFriends, and while the industry works hard to adapt to what is the new food experience, we're going to focus this episode on cold side equipment with questions from and inspired by you guys, the techs who answer the calls. Joining me as always is Food Service Equipment Reports Managing Editor, Allison Resendiz.
1: We'll also hear about some crazier calls you techs in the field have had to respond to.
0: But first, something new we're going to be doing quarterly, and that's address a specific topic that's been brought up in the Tech Town Forum. And in this episode, we have the expert on cold side equipment, Refrigerated Specialist President Scott Hester. And Scott, our first question comes from TechTown member Oliver, who says you don't see much online about blast chillers. His experience only relates to their multi-settings. And he wants to know how they figured out a way to run the same compressor with the same line set and TXV to do either 20 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit.
2: That would specifically be the compressor engineering handling a wide suction temperature range which so includes a wide compression ratio and be able to perform successfully and not hurt itself traditionally the air conditioning level compressor versus the cold storage refrigeration and freezer compressors operated at different ranges and you would have seen this over the years on compressor failures of traditional remote ice makers and self-contained ice makers. They also do a wide range of temperature with their hot gas cycles and they've uh, engineered past that which makes it really possible. So that also would be the BTU capacity to be able to do minus 30 versus plus 30 and take the heat out of the product that would also be required to Perform for the equipment. So that's where they had to engineer a solution and they do real well with it now.
1: Scott, more suppliers are turning to R290 refrigerant because of its low environmental impact. But what are some of the common questions you hear from techs out in the field as it relates to servicing R290 and what advice do you have?
2: Well, it, initially, everyone treats it in a rather foreign or mysterious way. And It is a hazardous refrigerant in that it is flammable. It is uh, basically propane that is not scented. So you can't smell it if you're releasing it, except for any kind of oil smell that may be present from refrigeration oil. And it is highly flammable and you do have to follow the protocols that come with the special training for handling the R290 refrigerant. Other than that, the R two ninety refrigerant works like any other refrigerant with respect to pressure temperature relationships on the refrigeration cycle, and compared to the most recent generation of refrigerants such as R four hundred four, and the other varieties and the interim gases that are replacing gases being um, eliminated first to eliminate CFC chlorofluorocarbons. And then later HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, the R290 is quite friendly and easy to work with with respect to moisture and compression ratios and other performances compared to all of the other gases we've dealt with in the last, say, 20 years.
0: So one of the biggest discussions that we've seen in the TechTown Forum recently is about ice machines and that they took a beating during the COVID-19 imposed closures. Uh, they're sensitive pieces of equipment, and in many cases, operators didn't properly shut them down. What are some uh, best tips for techs when bringing an ice machine back online?
2: Well, that would be including removing the water filters and discarding them, replacing them with new, uh, draining out all of the water that would be residing inside the cubers for an extended period without movement and doing a full disassembly of the ice makers and a full clean and a full sanitize and reassemble to get you back to the proper sanitary level of the water coming into the machine as well as the inner working parts of the machine that touch the potable water that becomes the ice that we consume and to go through that with the particular detail from being shut down for three months or six months or something, because you'll get a lot of the aggressive growth in the dark, moist environments. It really wakes up the algaes and slimes. And as that dies, it dies off, it turns into mold and such. And so it can be really unsanitary.
1: Scott, on the topic of ice machines, what are common issues techs run into during installation? You know, in FER, you did an article with us about how operators need to be sure to select the right condenser type, get a local water analysis, and pick the right location. But what are some easy mistakes techs can make, and how can we help them out?
2: Well, one thing that would be critical for an ice machine would be, for starters, the condensers are normally matched with the low side or the uh, ice cuber sections. And if you just follow the manufacturer's guidelines and make sure you're your mating cuber and condenser correctly with line set, you'll be in good shape. Then when it comes to the installation at the job site, the water line size is very important. Oftentimes they'll be undersized and another area would be the water filtration system being properly applied to the machine. So it's not undersized. Every ice machine wants a certain rate of flow when they're filling with water or when they're water cooled what they need for the water cooled condenser don't have adequate ventilation and a lot of these ice makers have btu capacities that are equal to a small air conditioner or a windy unit room air conditioner and if they're dispensing that heat into the air conditioned space and the air conditioned space happens to be a storeroom or a closet or a back of the house area it's not air conditioned well you'll overheat the space and it can impact employee comfort and machine performance respective bin selection.
1: Suppliers are constantly releasing equipment with digital touchscreen interfaces. And I wonder what are some do's and don'ts when it comes to working with them?
2: A touchscreen is a sensitive electronic device and common sense, the way everybody uses anything from a smartphone to a tablet to any other touchscreen application, you know, the certain degree of uh, tender handling is appropriate. And that certainly applies to anything on, on equipment. And they should proceed with caution. Pecking at it harder and harder to affect the command you're trying to get it to accept doesn't necessarily work. It's usually another other reason that it's not working.
0: I'm in Chicago right now, and um, we're finally, our restaurants finally have the go-ahead to open up with, you know, a small amount of people inside, and which is a big deal coming into the winter. Uh, but, you know, what are some other refrigeration um, things that maybe people need to, uh, that techs need to look at uh, when uh, diagnosing problems?
2: Well, the ice maker family, with the lower sales volume that's generally happening with all of the establishments, they can have some you know consumer electrical issue Um, they could be wasting electricity if you get a machine that has a water solenoid and you're starting to seep water out so you could be losing water not cease making ice but the machine that might only want to run eight hours a day to keep up with the demand may creep into running 24 hours a day and you see a declining ice level and during that period of time you'll get a possibly noticeable spike in your uh, water bill and your electric bill. So you would want to be sensitive to the natural cycles. You come in in the morning, you expect a certain level of ice, you expect a certain number of runtime hours per day to pay close attention to that. On the commercial refrigeration side in general, you've got a routine or a sinus rhythm of the restaurant opening and prep and the meal periods and the close and you've also got the operator shift changes. And if they'll use a a temperature recording period, if they would write their temperature down two or three times a day at the same time of day, when you start to get creep in temperatures, that's an early indication of a potential to where you can possibly avoid an emergency downtime, emergency service call, food loss, and so forth.
0: You know, you talked about, um, uh, you know, the equipment running overtime. Um, one of the things I did hear about from, um, uh, from One Tech, he, he went and, and had to deal with a, an operator's freezer. And the thing was, when they shut things down, they kind of just crammed everything into their freezers. Can you think of anything that maybe to look out for when dealing with something like that?
2: Well, one thing you talk about is um, overstuffing the equipment. And anything from a small refrigerator on the cook line to your large walk-in cooler or freezer in your building. The evaporator coil and all the product placed on the shelving, there needs to be reasonable spacing allowed so air can circulate around the product. Anything that's stacked on the floor is not going to have air circulation under it. Anything pressed hard against the ceiling won't have any air circulation over it and that might allow heat to migrate into it and not keep it at a good temperature. Uh, Another point of caution would be when you get into a temperature crisis, Oftentimes, people think that buying dry ice and putting it in the walk-in cooler or the walk-in freezer will save their food, and that's an um, Occupational Safety Hazard Administration violation because the operators don't have basically a scuba mask or artificial breathing apparatus like a fireman wears. Yeah, and you can't put you can't put dry ice in a space to affect cooling without having the breathing apparatus there. So. Be cautious of that. When our service technicians go on the job, if there's dry ice in the walk-in, we don't go in the walk-in without them taking the dry ice out first. And then we have to leave the door open and have somebody stand there and watch us because if you're overcome by carbon dioxide displacing the oxygen, you don't get much of a warning and you just pass out. And it's very dangerous and people have been hospitalized and people have been killed by it in our restaurant industry, including Chicago and Dallas. So it's important not to get tangled up with dry ice inside your walk-in coolers and freezers.
0: That is something that I never, ever heard of and never considered either. That's, a, that's a, an amazing tip, thank you.
2: Oh, certainly. And um, with respect to walk-in freezers and ice cream specifically, generally speaking, you've got a given amount of food in the space. And if you have a temperature emergency, you cannot buy enough dry ice to save the ice cream side and the highly perishable low, you know, the lower melting points. Yeah, A lot of that stuff's gonna be gone if you don't have alternate storage. So you look at what you can move to coolers yeah. and that kind of thing. So that, that's where just normal icing down the proteins in a walk-in cooler will go a long way. Certain produce will be okay at a higher temperature for a short period of time while you
0: get your repairs, you know, rendered. All right, very cool. Thank you, Refrigerated Specialist President Scott Hester, for all your great expert insight there. Next up, it's our Nuts and Bolts segment, and this is where we hear from you guys. And for this episode, it was a lot of fun checking out some of the crazier calls you've been on. First up, we have General Parts and Service Branch Manager, Angelo.
3: The craziest service call I ever had was for a deli group based here in the Southwest. It was a Saturday morning, and I was on call. The phone rang, and it was the answering service. They had a call for me. No cooling to all refrigerations at this deli. I called the store immediately and asked a couple of quick questions. They had power to the store, breakers in the panel were not tripped, and the ice cream machine was running. The ice cream machine for me had me stumped. It was a three-phase unit, and this would have let me know if the building had lost a leg of power. Little did I know, this new service call would lead to a very large project. I got dressed and left the house. I arrived on site and spoke with the manager. We looked at... All their salad bar style coolers the fans were all running but the remote condensers on the roof were not it was the same with the walk-in cooler but with the freezer the fans were not running i was formulating that maybe somebody had been on the roof and left a couple of the disconnects off but all the hvac units in the store were running i needed to head to the roof and check this out but this was no ordinary roof <laughs> it was the worst roof i've ever seen as you climb up to the roof you start on the east side of the building then you have to climb up and and then back down ladders to access the next sections of the roof. To get all the way to the west side where the restaurant was, you essentially had to climb up four ladders and back down four ladders. As I crested the final ladder, this is when I knew there was going to be a major issue. There were no condensing units on the roof. Nothing. They were all gone. All that remained were some copper tubes and some exposed electrical wiring. Looking around, I could not tell where any of these units were. There were six full-size condensing units all gone. Each of the units were well over 200 pounds, and the walk-in freezer, probably over 300. I climbed off the roof, and there at the very corner of the building, I could see marks in the dirts where the unit had been thrown off the roof and then carried away. (laughs) This had to have taken many people in all night. I let the manager know, and she had contacted the police. She asked me to stick around, just in case they needed anything. When the police showed up, all in full gear, none of them were willing to traverse the roof. One unlucky rookie got the honors of climbing up with me so he could take some pictures. His mouth hit the floor just like mine when he saw the carnage. He had never seen units stolen from a rooftop before. I, being a technician, was in shock that no one had been electrocuted themselves as all the disconnects were still left on. When it was all said and done, the store was closed for just over a week, and we had to replace all the condensers, line sets, and disconnects to the tune of just over $100,000.
0: Next up, it's Gary's East Coast Service Certified Sofesa Master Technician, Donna D'Aquino.
2: Many years ago, when I first started off, we got a call for a blocked grinder at a chain coffee restaurant. We walk in, pull apart the grinder, and lo and behold, there is a bullet inside of the grinding burrs stuck in there. We usually find nuts, bolts, whatnot, but that was a first. A bullet, no shell. No casing, just the bullet tip. That one I still have not topped since this day.
0: And Hawkins Commercial Appliance Service General Manager and Vice President of Operations John Schwint wrote in with several experiences. We got a call one time from a customer that their steamer wouldn't fire up,
3: and there was this noise they'd never heard when they tried to turn it on. So our tech arrives, they find the combustion blower wouldn't start, and there was this squeaking sound. When they opened it up, a mouse ran out of the blower motor squirrel cage. The steamer worked fine after that. Another call about a restaurant that half their kitchen was down. When the tech arrived, he quickly discovered they'd lost their incoming power. When he went outside, there was a large bird laying across the transformers on the pole and wouldn't get off. The kitchen staff knew it was there, but they didn't think much of it because the bird was around the dumpster below it a lot. Another similar situation with an oven that wouldn't turn on, and when the kitchen staff went to see if it was plugged in, there was something staring at them in the outlet box the tech arrived, he found a little mouse staring out of the box and he was holding on with a death grip around a wire. I could probably go on for hours.
0: And thanks to my colleague Bob Kessler for reading John's email. And seriously, thanks to everyone for your contributions. We really do appreciate it. Next time our topic is, you know, it's not easy recruiting and retaining service techs, what's one example of how you encourage up and coming techs in the field? We'd love to hear from you, and you can call in to leave a message. Our number is 312-788-7618. That's 312-788-7618. You can also email or record a voice memo on your phone and send it along to servicecalls at fermag.com. And that's it for this episode of Service Calls, brought to you by Tech Town in partnership with Food Service Equipment Reports. We'll be back next month, so be sure to follow and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. I'm Rob LaFrance.